Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me always, as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. Hello. And this week we've got a special guest in the form of Joe Griffin. How are you, Joe? Hi, I'm very well, thanks. Thanks for having me. So this week we're continuing our summer of 1999 season by taking a look at M. Night Shyamalan's The Sixth Sense. So it's August 2nd, 1999. Christina Aguilar. This again. <laughs> this again. <laughs> Christ- we're almost halfway there, Andrew. Let him finish, Andrew. <laughs> Chili peppers are going to come back. Calm down. We got three days through. We need. Calm down. We don't want anybody to get hurt. To delay power, on fire, as you can see, it's not part of the show. It really is a problem. So the fire department's gonna have to come in with a fire truck to put the fire out. No one knows what sparked the riots, but some concertgoers attributed it to the high cost of food and water at the event. The fires were put out this morning, and most festival goers had left the site by 9 a.m. Tentative plans to host another Woodstock concert in Europe may have to be put on hold. There once was a house, a bright, happy home. Something bad happened. Now it sits all alone. We're running out of light, he said. Running out of light as searchers in aircraft, airplanes, helicopters, boats, pressing what has now become a desperate search for John F. Kennedy, his wife, and her sister. Apologize to Mike's mom and Josh's mom and my mom. I am so, so sorry because it is my fault because it was my project. <laughs> um, Christina Aguilera's Genie in a Bottle, The Ode to Terrible Sex, is at number one in the charts. Bills, Bills, Bills is at number two. Wild Wild West continues our triple alliteration at number three. All Star by Smash Mouth is at number seven. I Want It That Way by the Backstreet Boys is at number eight. And again, we talked on the podcast before about how when we hit 1999... Huh. How much of the audio package is Smash Mouth? <laughs> All of the audio package is Smash Mouth. Um, but uh, yeah, so basically, we talked on the podcast before, like covering 1999 as a year in cinema, it's fascinating because there have been years where I've looked at the entire top 10 and recognized and seen every movie on that. There have also been weeks where Andrew's asked, Darren, what's the movie at number six? So I decided to combine those two interests by going through and guiding you through the top 10 at the American box office this weekend. So, at number 10, American Pie. At number 9, The Iron Giant. At number 8, The Haunting, which has dropped four places to eight. Inspector Gadget is down two at seven. Mystery Men is a new entry at number six. Deep Blue Sea is in at number five. The Thomas Crown Affair is at number four. Runaway Bride, uh, which was the previous week's number one, is at number three. And The Blair Witch Project is holding firm at number two. That means opening at number one this week is the sixth sense. That's, pretty that's incredible. 
That's a, that is an incredible week. Yeah. Like, we know all of those movies. <laughs> yeah, as opposed to, like, you know, even I've now. I've seen nine of them. Yeah. <laughs> oh, which one did you miss? Runaway Bride. Ah, okay. It's... I actually tried to watch it, and I couldn't get there. I couldn't. Just push yourself past Yeah, it. no, I couldn't get past about <laughs> half an hour. Really? Like, oh, yeah, okay. that's true. So you actually tried. You... Yeah, yeah, legit. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, stuck in... Ah, oh, damn it. I'm getting like... Darren, I was, going, I was trying to make some sort of stuck in second gear. Kind of, oh, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll catch it in post. Um, <laughs> um, in terms of actual news, uh, because it's the summer, there's not much happening in the world of television. Um, it's been a long time since we last talked. We covered... Uh, was it The Matrix last week with Grace and with Alex? That was in March. We've now jumped to August. So in, 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 the, t- in the month since, a lot has happened. But primarily, a lot of bad news. Woodstock 1999 descended into anarchy over the weekend of the 22nd and 23rd July. Yeah. Limp Bizkit said break stuff. And people listen to Limp Bizkit. Yeah. But do, oh, by the way, we're going to have they a, had lo- a lot of influence. I, <laughs> they, were, they were, oh, we're going to have a lot of Fred Durst content soon. Oh. Very soon. Um, I let, Joe doesn't look particularly sort of engaged or excited by I, that. I think it's funny that you said it was Amen. a disaster that people listened to Limp Biscuit, <laughs> and, and that sentence would work regardless of context. context yeah, yeah. Um, tragically, Limp Biscuit were there. John um, F. Kennedy Jr. Um, died in a plane crash. Um, he crashed his plane into the Atlantic Ocean off Martha's Vineyard on July sixteenth. Um, NASA crashed the Lunar Prospector onto the moon's surface, destroying it on July 31st. And Brian James, the actor, actually passed away on 7th August, uh, which is interesting because, ironically enough, he's one of the first celebrity deaths that I remember. He's the guy from um, Blade Runner and various other sort of like science fiction sort of movies in the 80s. Um, But yeah, and in terms of actual what we're here to discuss today... Is you on screen? (laughs) Sorry, is is it the person I'm thinking of? Yes, the guy with the turtle at the start. Oh, okay. <laughs> Andrew's like, suddenly it makes a lot of sense that Darren remembers Brian James's death. Because I'm um, like, who's that? <laughs> it's like, oh, it's, it's, it's Darren. It's the character in Blade Runner that Andrew thinks most resembles Darren. Not physically. <laughs> <laughs> That's much worse. <laughs> yeah. Just emotionally and psychologically. Um, but yeah, so, and, and obviously The Sixth Sense opened this weekend and became a smash hit. Uh, going into the weekend, box office prognosticators had estimated that the Blair Witch Project, which was a box office force to be reckoned with on its own terms, was going to take back the number one spot following on from mediocre reviews for The Runaway Bride. Uh, but The Sixth Sense opened at number one. And here's the thing. Of all the movies that we are covering as part of this season, the summer of 99, this is the most successful 1999 movie on the IMDb's top 250. More, more than The Matrix. More than The Matrix. It is the second most successful film. Second most financially successful <clears throat> film of 1999 behind The Phantom Menace, obviously. So this is... Do we mean in 1999? So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so any any sales afterwards aren't, aren't, aren't counted. So no, we're not counting like the, the DVD boom for Fight Club or whatever. Or something right, like that. right. Um, but yeah, so like this was a box office phenomenon, which is amazing because it came out of... <laughs> literally uh, nowhere. The director, M. Night Shyamalan, uh, this wasn't his first film. This, yeah, but it, it, it was at a time when M. Night Sh- um, uh, Shyamalan uh, didn't mean anything. Yeah. Because like, he had... N. Night Shyamalan Yeah, people wouldn't have... Um, recognized the name. No. Like, he, he had two credits to his name. He directed uh, Wide Awake, which had grossed just $282,000 in 1998. Um, and he'd also, which I believe is the Rosie O'Donnell 
baseball-loving non-movie. If you need a, if you need a sort of a oh, memory wow. jog there, uh, I think Dennis Leary was in that too. <laughs> um, which What's is it for, called? Uh, it's called Wide Awake. Wide Awake. That's a bad move. The bad. That's a bad name for a Rosie O'Donnell baseball movie. Doesn't make me think that um, that it's going to be a Rosie O'Donnell uh, baseball, baseball movie. movie. No. Or that there are nuns involved. Oh, there are nuns too. Yeah. Yeah, just name it something else. <laughs> uh, that That's your main problem there. Uh, I would have preferred to have seen a movie called Baseball Nun. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the clue's in the title. <laughs> you're overselling You know what this. you're getting. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then he'd, he'd obviously, he was known in Hollywood circles as the writer of, screen, of screenplays like Labour of Love and Stuart Little, actually, which he apparently rewrote from scratch. Wait, was the twist that she was a nun? <laughs> <laughs> All along. <laughs> Spoilers, spoilers, okay. Andrew, spoilers. Um, but yeah, so like the Sixth Sense was a cultural phenomenon. Joe, do you remember when you first saw it? Did you see it in cinemas? Uh, and what, uh, like in a broader context of 1999, what was 99 like for you? Um, 99 was an interesting year for me. Uh, I think was I just out of college? Yeah, I was working in a radio station. I was working in Light FM, which is now Q102. And uh, it opened up um, press screenings for me, which was great. So when I first started working there, I was a broadcast assistant slash sound engineer. And I was only working weekends, which was really bad for my 20 something social life. I get invited to party like it was. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like it was a celebratory year (laughs) worth marking. (laughs) (laughs) But but uh, I went to I think I was reviewing a little bit on Light FM and I did some um, interviews including Olivia Williams actually which oh. I'll talk about in a little bit oh wow, um, wow. yeah god kept that twist to myself <laughs> in there um, but what it meant was that I so I was living at home and I was working two days a week so I could get by on whatever I was making which meant that I could go to press screenings if they came up and I went to I was very indiscriminate. I went to Inspector Gadget press screening and I went to... But crucially, not Runaway Bride. No, that, that actually... the movie? That was nice. Uh, 99 no, was about the same weekend as The Matrix, I believe. I saw The Matrix at a press screening. Ooh, um, what was and, that like? Sorry, not, not was, to jump back all over Grace <laughs> and Alex. but um, It was great and I was really excited about it, but it didn't really have a great atmosphere. Oh. Um, you know, press screenings can be very sterile. Yeah. Um, but... I remember there was in Fairview, there was a little screening room that belonged to Disney um, and Buena Vista. And it was really run down and uh, it was about, I don't know, 50 seats or something like that. And that's where I saw The Sixth Sense. And um, it was a great way to see it, actually, because it's a really quiet movie. Um, and I only realized this again. I watched it for the first time in literally about 20 years um, last night. And it's so gentle and it's so quiet and it's so different from how it was marketed. And I remember seeing the trailer beforehand, like a few weeks beforehand, uh, probably at the Blair Witch. And um, it was marketed as a like proper horror movie. Like mm. the very first shot in the trailer is like the flare from a car accident being opened. And we're like, whoa, we're going to see a car crash. And um, <laughs> yeah, there was... That's, like, that's a different the- M. Night Shyamalan movie. Or oh, several. <laughs> yeah, he likes a car crash. Um, so, oh yeah, that figurative <laughs> sorry, and yeah. literal car crash. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I was expecting a totally different movie. And I remember a friend of mine who is now uh, an employee of the IFI, David O'Mahony, said, um, 
it's not a slam bang jump scare horror movie it's nice he said it's mm. nicer than you expect and i was like oh really um, but anyway yeah i saw it on in that like relatively small screening room and it was really quiet about i don't know six people there um at half 10 on a tuesday morning or whatever like weekday morning and i was just so blown away by it um i just thought it was so beautiful and then in retrospect you can see why it was such a big hit because it's exactly the kind of film that people would go to see again and again yeah, to see yeah. if the puzzle pieces All slot again yeah yeah um so that was my that was my experience of it and um that was my 99 right yeah like it was a, it was a weird cultural like pop culture summer for me because i remember the excitement um about star wars and vanity fair had like that big spread and jar jar binks was on the cover of it and like the the photo shoot was probably annie leibowitz um i'd love to find her <laughs> with, with jar jar binks <laughs> yeah yeah exactly um so uh yeah and people are really excited and then just the opening crawl about trade disputes and everybody loves a good tax debate <laughs> yeah it's true everyone does <laughs> they're inevitable um <laughs> so yeah what i loved about that summer and that year in cinema was the amount of surprises and i know that like american beauty has aged like milk but that's next week okay um but but <laughs> I like I will... that we're stepping we're stepping over charlene and uh roanoke as well uh, okay but I, I will just say that i think it, no, i think it's it, yeah. no i think it's amazing that like and, and i know it's a cliche now like peeling back the hypocrisy of suburbia blah 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 i know that's hacky and a cliche now but it does hearten me to think that there was this like drama about a middle-aged man's ennui and it made like a hundred million dollars in the box office and similarly with six cents it's a really gentle affecting drama that millions of people paid to see twice yeah. and, uh, well, and multiple tell- times um, yeah because i mean oh, this is the- sorry well i tell you about olivia williams go, go for it so i was interviewing her about a year or two later for a period drama i think it was the heart of me uh, which is quite a nice movie and I had to ask about Sixth Sense. And I said to her, like, God, you had an incredible year that year. You had Rushmore and The Sixth I love, Sense. Like, I love her in Rushmore. Yeah. I love her in both in both those movies. Yeah. I thought she was, she was really lovely. And uh, she's a great interviewee. She's really um, outspoken and um, interesting and fun. And I said, did you know that Sixth Sense was going to be a phenomenon like when you were making it? And she said she thought it was a gorgeous movie. That she had great faith in it being good but that she thought that nobody would go to see it and Mm. her two reasons were uh, it's about a weird kid and bruce willis doesn't have a gun in it and then she was like she said she was delighted to be to have been proven wrong i think her next film after that was the postman well yeah and you imagine that was of the ones that she made that was probably the one she was banking on being the one that would last the kevin costner led i'd say so epic yeah. yeah But uh, just actually in terms of that, because this is kind of interesting in terms of the film. It's funny you should mention it being a gentle film, because apparently Shyamalan originally uh, planned for the movie to be in the style of something more like uh, Science of the Lambs. His first 10 drafts of the screenplay uh, were originally like a, were about a crime photographer with a son who experienced visions of the victims 
Um, and basically he would piece together the case using his son's visions. And then sort of Shyamalan sort of pushed away from that. But also in terms of... I could see that movie being made in the 90s. <laughs> yes. Uh, I would like kiss the girls. Morgan Freeman is yeah. kind of, would be the father in that movie. To exactly. Um, but I mean, what's, what's remarkable though is the box office returns. Because in its first five weeks, it made 26 million. Then 25 million, which is practically unheard of. That's a drop of, of only a million between weeks. Then down to 23 million. Then 20 million. And then up to 29 million in its fifth week. That's a phenomenal hold on an audience and a phenomenal draw. And I mean, it, it's interesting. Like, it's there's a kind a... of movie as well that you'd see. That, like, I remember seeing, uh, not not a movie that was nearly as good as this. But I think as 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 a teen, the kind of movie that you'd be dragged along to every single week was, um, the the others. I think the the um I used the to others find... is Nicole Kidman. That's a yeah, Nicole yeah, Kidman. yeah. I. But I used to find that that was that was the I think we spoke about this before about um or maybe in the future about <laughs> how 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 um what uh, uh, appeal um I thought that kind of um uh, uh, horror, horror movies has, yeah. had like especially for kind of teens I think you've suggested that it's mostly kind of like teen boys who tend to like I used to think of it as 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 something that I that I would be kind of. Um, encouraged to go see by kind of teen girls. girls that I was friends with. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I think that's that's kind of a when I think of teen boys, I think in particular of things like slasher. I think of exploitation films. I think of films like the Halloween sequels or the Nightmare on Elm Street sequels or the the Hills of Eyes. That's sort of like gaudy, disposable sort of ha ha ha. We're probably going to get to see some nudity and some blood. That sort of aspect of horror movies. I don't mean you know like this sort of horror movie to pick an example or even the others uh which is you know i kind of i recall i haven't seen it in years but i remember it being a sort of a gentler horror movie it's not as gentle as this mind yeah. you but it's kind of it's good mind it's yeah but it, it is just it's more introspective than yeah. you know something like the hills of eyes to the hills of Eyes or whatever <laughs> but um <clears throat> yeah it's that sort of thing and what's interesting actually in terms of things like the, the sixth sense and this is where there's a lot of debate about whether or not it will be made today. Because, I mean, there are examples of movies that have done something similar to The Sixth Sense. Like last year, um, what was it? The Greatest Showman. Which oh, yeah. went on to be one of the top 10 grossing films of 2018, despite being released the same weekend as The Last Jedi in 2017. Because it slowly, slowly accrued money. It was in cinemas for something like 12 weeks, uh, which is remarkable. Um, and, I mean, the budget for this movie, which is... M. Night Shyamalan's sort of like, it's a big swing. It's not like anything that he'd written before. He hadn't got a proven track record. Uh, but it, they, Disney it's gave... unusual. Like yeah. written and directed. A yeah. lot of trust. Yeah. I suppose, does it explain it? The, 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 does the budget kind of make sense? Oh, no, no. The budget was $40 million, which was oh. quite high in the context of the 90s. Um, and again, like it's well, like how much of that was Bruce Willis's salary? That's the yeah, I I don't have that figured to hand. Apparently, he worked relatively cheap as well. Willis has a reputation for being very very difficult. I mean, I think Kevin Smith has described working with Willis as one of the things that made him give up directing. Yeah, uh, but Shyamalan uh, also every cloud, what? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but Shyamalan actually has nothing but nice things to say about working with Willis and um, similarly Haley Joel Osmond also has nothing but nice things to say about working with Willis as well and uh, he's talked about how much faith Willis put in him as a director who was just starting out 
Famously, uh, Cathy. Really, <laughs> <laughs> Joel Osment. Fair point. Very fair point. Tells things how things are. Yeah. Um, the twist will be M. Night Shyamalan will get to his death and will be like, yeah, working with Bruce Willis was a real slog. But generally speaking, like he's worked with him a couple of times. But Shyamalan's quite outspoken. Yes. He would say it if there was... If yeah. it was an case, actor yeah. And they've worked together repeatedly as well. And I mean, the way in which Willis has worked with him as well, Willis has done cameos oh, yeah, for him. movies, right? Four movies, four? technically counting Split. Uh, yeah, oh, so, oh Split. yeah, Unbreakable. Yeah, this the, Unbreakable, um, what's it, the... Uh, yeah, I was thinking of this Glass. Unbreakable and Glass. Yeah, but that's he's four. he's in Split as well? He's in Split as well, yes. Yeah. He has a, there's a teaser in, in Split. And again, the fact that they oh, were... like a Marvel movie? Yes, that's wow. exactly what he's doing. Um, but yeah, it's that sort of thing, and they they work very well together. It's like Shyamalan apparently when he went to Hollywood to sell the Sixth Sense, he first of all he told his agent two things. He said, "You're not going to sell this for less than one million dollars," which was a huge ask um, for a script again from somebody whose biggest hit to date was a Rosie O'Donnell baseball nun movie. <laughs> um, and he also said, "When you sell the script, I'm directing it as well." And apparently he went out, he booked a hotel, I think it was the Four Seasons. And he remembered looking at the bill for the first night that he was staying at the Four Seasons saying, look, if this doesn't work, I probably have to go back home and, you know, I don't know, give up writing and start computer programming or something. Or, you know, sort of like I knitting thought you were going to say, he thought he'd get into the hotel business. <laughs> it's it's like, like, I can make oh, this, this work. This is what they're making? <laughs> yeah. what, what are their overheads on this? Um, but yeah, he, he managed to sell it and they gave him a $40 million budget, which was a lot of money for an untrusted kind of director at mm. that point. Um, and again, it, it looks it works relatively well i think it's a fabulous looking movie like joe this was the first time i had watched it in years um and going Same. back to, yeah and i kind of i think a large part of that is down to Shyamalan himself where i think you know i think unbreakable is a masterpiece i think unbreakable is one of the best american films of the past 25 years oh easy tiger <laughs> <laughs> but, one of the best american films of the last Okay. 25 years. I mean, years? you know, when I say one of the best, probably in the 100-ish region. Uh, okay, okay. It's still very Just, generous. <laughs> to Unbreakable. I, I think it's an excellent film. Oh, okay. It's a it's a weird thing. I, I think Unbreakable is as good as The Sixth Sense. I think it is oh, okay. super. I think it's a terrific movie. Um, the the Poochie goes to Mars bit at the end <laughs> with the text on screen. Yeah. Or the uh, bit at that, the start where they explain comic books. Oh, yeah. I don't, dated I, really interestingly. Yeah, actually, weirdly, that bit I've never was... I've seen this. Oh, okay. oh. I loved it. It's I an did. excellent movie, yeah. but <laughs> the, there's an epilogue bit. Like, so the, the movie ends, and then there's like a big blurge of text saying like, then all this <laughs> happened. And it's... <laughs> <laughs> and it, was, it very much reminded me of like Pucci going to Mars. Yes, yeah, yeah. And, he died on the way back to his home yeah, planet. And, <laughs> and it was a real shame because uh, everything prior to that is, yeah, I do. I just think it, it's a beautiful film as well. It's really intelligent and it's really um, sympathetic and really sensitive to the characters. And it's really tense and exciting. And like, it's doing interesting it's things in the genre as well. And I think it's, it's the rare Shyamalan movie after The Sixth Sense where the twist works because it's not really a twist so much as a revelation as to what kind of film this is yeah um, that's a good which point is very clever as well i think it's very well structured and i think it's aged well in that sense but what i was gonna say again this was the thing where i was i was constructing a compliment sandwich joe oh sorry um, <laughs> but it's, it turns out one half of the bread is stale um but yeah i, I was kind of wary about approaching the sixth sense after 20 years because of everything that has happened since 
Shaman's kind of had a very rocky career, if we're being generous about it. Uh, where he's had turbulent. His, turbulent would probably be the, the word for it. He was famously described as the next Spielberg on the cover of Newsweek magazine in 2002 promoting signs, which I actually have a lot of time for signs. Did you write that article? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, unbreakable. I mean, you know, how could signs not nail this? Like, perfect trilogy. Is he, is, is he one of the few directors um, who have kind of an equal... Uh, are like equivalent representation on both the 250 and the bottom 100 yes yes yeah. he is oh yeah that's a <laughs> that's a really interesting point yeah, yeah he was himself and like guy Ritchie. no guy Ritchie actually has more representation on the top 250 but yeah so it, that, oh that's a twist guy Ritchie is two to one <laughs> two to one yeah right uh whereas Shyamalan is one to one right so what uh, so which yeah. I, oh let's play no. which Shyamalan movie is on the bottom 100 Wait, I would, wait, first of all, Guy Ritchie made, like, Swept Away. Yes, that's it. Uh, and then he made that, oh, what was that? Really Revolver? Ba- yeah, Revolver. Yeah, that was really, really bad. Um, <laughs> so either one of those could qualify. It's Swept Away, I'm afraid to say. Oh, of course away. it is. That's a very bottom 100 movie because it stars a female pop star. Oh, so it yeah. joins things like uh, Jiggly, for example, Crossroads. Um, and, and Spice Glitter, World. Which, Spice World and Glitter, which we talked Glitter, about as well. Yeah. Yeah. I heard Spice World is quite underappreciated. I, I, we quite enjoyed we it. We really enjoyed it. It's yeah, very much like we a enjoy BBC. Glitter. Yes. Glitter, yeah. glitter is a bad movie. Spice World is a like a bad with exclamation marks movie. It's fun. It's an ab fab or like a, it's a com- comedy relief segment. That, that just goes on know, for an hour yeah, and 50, yeah. 50 minutes. Or an hour and 30 minutes roughly. It's fine. It's fun. Yeah. It's, it's like, fun. oh, did you see it? It yeah. has like the Spice Girls in it. <laughs> and, and, they're, and, they're, and they're being funny. They're doing little bits with Richard E. Grant. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but it's an hour and a half. It is. <laughs> it's an hour and a half sports relief sort of sketch, basically, is what it is. And But I, I quite enjoyed it on, on those terms. But yeah, so Shyam. Okay, so Swept Away is Guy Ritchie's bottom 100 film. What is Shyamalan's bottom 100 film, do we think? Oh, uh, there's so many to choose from. The Happening. No. Oh, oh wait, wait. Um, the Last Airbender. Yes. Oh, ding, ding, ding. Yeah. <laughs> we have a winner. Uh, so it's not Lady, Lady in the Water. In the water. Yes, I know that. that that's would also another be a honker. Yeah. <laughs> Um, which is great because the thing about Shyamalan is that like and again this is a thing where I don't know if it's unfair for me not to like him given I don't know him but the image he projected of himself around the time of that famous The Next Spielberg interview or feature in Newsweek when he was promoting The Village he worked in association with the Sci-Fi Channel to produce and I quote an unofficial biography of M. Night Shyamalan right and this unofficial biography, which was not sanctioned in any way by the M. Night Shyamalan estate, but was actually secretly co-written with him, uh, would have suggested that Shyamalan's gift was a divinely sort of a divine gift from heaven to allow him to write excellent scripts and to produce great cinema. That, that makes m- me like him more. <laughs> <laughs> that, makes, <laughs> that may or may not have been associated with the death of like an eight-year-old boy on the edge of his home when he was a kid. Um, what? What? The, the eight-year-old kid didn't exist. It's fine. Well, okay. Well, it's fine in inverted commas. <laughs> but yeah, no, apparently, yeah. So the, the documentary, <laughs> the documentary in inverted commas, which will include in the show notes, will include, but it suggested that 
So when he took the life kid, force from this other child? <laughs> seems to have been what the documentary was implying, was that after the death of this child, Shyamalan was changed. And after that, he had a gift. And he used that gift to make excellent movies. I, <laughs> after hearing this ar- anecdote, I am changed. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't think of anything more cynical than inventing the death of a child to, to justify give yourself your a backstory. Yeah. Jesus. Yep. Yeah. Um, and of course, it came out um, after there were a rake of complaints about this. He came forward and he said, actually, uh, this, I was, yeah, I was in on it. This makes me a terrible person, but I've done that. I, 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 um, I was well. Yeah, I was once telling a, a story about my childhood to a friend of mine, and then I could tell that he had completely checked out. And then I was just like, "Yeah," and that friend, that friend, he died, and he was like, "Oh my god!" And was, I was I like, the friend? No, no, no. It was some other friend from Balana. But then I remember, maybe years later, I was talking, and I just brought up the same person, completely having forgot. And he was like, is that your friend who died? It's like, oh, I lied about that. Listeners don't have time to find out. about person. Yeah, listeners don't have time to go into the Andrew failing the leaving cert story with Darren or the Andrew getting married in Chile story with Darren. But we'll we'll come back to those later. Um, um, I was going to say, what kind of monster would make up a story about a dead child? And now I know. Yeah, you do. Yeah, yeah. In the flesh. He's sitting to my left. <laughs> yeah. um, but yeah, so that, that's basically, so that's kind of why I feel sort of conflicted and why I felt a little bit wary going back to it. Because like Shyamalan, when these first two movies came out, and I really liked Signs as well, I remember sitting watching The Village. The Village was the moment I soured on Shyamalan. Because I guess the twist to The Village in literally the establishing shot of the film. And I was like, yes, I know where this is going. And I spent the following like two hours waiting for the movie to catch up with that. And I remember coming out of that movie when I was about, what, at that stage, 15, being just really disillusioned and tired and over it. Um, And I think that because of that, I've been a bit hesitant to revisit The Sixth Sense. And I think that's a shame because it's a really, really good movie. Uh, It's a super movie. And it's... It was really interesting for me to watch it for a few reasons. Um, One is that obviously we change a lot in 20 years. And Mm. um, in the time since, uh, I actually this past summer, like I lost my dad and there's like a character in it grieving the loss of a parent, which was uh, really affecting. And I became a parent as well. Like I have a three-year-old daughter, almost four. Um, So like the the trauma and the anguish of somebody not being nice to your child. It's really powerful. It's really heady. And somebody Mm. not seeing um, your child for the special person that you think they are. Like, we all think we're poxy special, but like if everyone's special, nobody's special. But we especially think that of our children. And yeah, yeah, not everyone is going to think that. So I find that really powerful and emotional. And then there's the added um, appreciation of seeing all the clues as i mentioned earlier slotting together and it's really structurally sound like um there's the little details there's so many scenes so many more than not that work regardless of when you see it yeah whether you see the first Uh, time or the second time yeah like so when the well let's not be too specific there may be listeners we're going to pivot into the spoiler zone afterwards huh okay uh there's someone out there who's not seen this fair point Uh, (laughs) okay fair enough we can wait but 
yeah, it's it's really watertight and it's also really fun saying, oh, how did I not tweak that? And um, it's also really impressive that it came out the same year as Fight Club yeah. and Fight Club did not have the best twist of the year as I, in your face, yeah. in your faces. <laughs> um, your bruised, battered, either incredibly handsome or vaguely character actor-ish face. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and it's, it's kind of interesting because Fanon himself has talked about this. He said how he's kind of curious with the reception in Sixth Sense. And like, part of me wonders if maybe he's matured a little bit as an artist because he's talking about that on the 20th anniversary. And he's like, I wonder if now, if people saw an M. Night Shyamalan movie, would it would The Sixth Sense, if it was the exact same movie, if it hadn't been released before, would people go into it and would they see it in the same way? Because, you know, it's kind of, you now expect a twist from Shyamalan. You now expect a sort of an ending. You expect a sort of a, a big reveal at a certain point. And like, would The Sixth Sense have the same impact if he released it now? That's a fabulous question. Um, one thing I kept talking about to my wife watching it last night uh, was, I don't think that the secret of the twist would survive this year. If it In came social out, media and, and yeah, if it came out this summer, like oh my god, not only would like it be spoiled if you have any social media account, but you'd go into work the next day and someone be like, "Hey, how about that twist, huh?" And you'd have yeah, explainer articles uh, yeah. on all the websites. I, I feel like we've gotten um, to some extent have gotten good, like uh, at at that. I think with Game of Thrones, there like there, I knew that there was. There was this thing, the the red wedding, that people would kind of like talk about, um, uh, but I didn't know what the red wedding red involved. wedding was. And similarly, the 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 mountain and viper was it? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. That that that, that those were things that big kind things. of yeah, big things that happened online with maybe kind of um, um, uh, uh, memes perhaps, but 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 that didn't kind of reveal enough to ruin it for me. Well, I mean, even even in terms of Game of Thrones, it's worth noting that, again, one of the things that I think is remarkable in terms of spoiler culture is how good people who read the books were at not spoiling certain reveals for people who are watching the show. So, for example, and again, the death of a really major character quite early on, which took everybody who had not read the books by surprise, <laughs> which is remarkable considering the books have been out for, at that stage, what, 23 years? Mm. Yeah, people have been talking for a long time. Like, I'd, I'd, I'd met, like, a lot of people at that point before the show even came out, it would be like, oh, I'm reading these books. Uh, Game of Thrones are really great and kind of raving about them. Yeah. Uh, but I I don't fully agree with you guys. Um, there's a very recent example I have, and that's um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And there yeah. was an, either a writer or an editor for Empire Magazine and it was the Monday after opening weekend. In I'm the not, States, oh, by the way. R- writers are terrible at it. No, this was the UK uh, oh, okay. thing. Um, so it was the Monday after the opening weekend. And she, I'm not going to say the stuff in case people haven't done it. Because I think that would be very hypocritical, giving out about spoilers. <laughs> While <Yeah>. spoiling. <laughs> <laughs> spoiling. Uh, but she said, oh, the ending was such and such. And she described it across like three tweets no warning of a spoiler or whatever and people were tweeting her saying thanks for the spoiler lady and i think what happens sometimes with critics um is that she probably saw this movie like in april and so to her the film is like half a year old whereas to somebody like me the film is like a week old or something and i was when i saw the tweets i was like 
oh thank god i saw it like last thursday or something yeah no i i find writers journalists um uh critics are um are terrible at this and and, and are are generally annoyed that 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 kind of people are as annoyed as as um as they are like uh, about about spoilers and i i don't think kind of maybe like um appreciate what's the one we've spoken about about a number of times the dark knight rises the guardian um review of that oh yeah yeah which was just a plot summary yeah yeah, yeah it, was, it was like Whoa. that's a bradshaw special it's a peter bradshaw special exactly. you can tell when peter bradshaw is like i saw a movie i don't really have a strong opinion of it i've got an 800 Here's word target that yes <laughs> my deadline's tomorrow <laughs> yeah uh, I love Peter Bradshaw, but there is a tendency to do that. Yes. Yeah, but it did. Did but I. I think. I think people kind of maybe outside of that bubble are a little bit better. I don't know. Maybe not. Um, I. I. I tend to find like the 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 people who you're expecting, not to not to not to spoil these things, kind of um, tend tend to do a worse job than the sort of great unwashed. Um, yeah, possibly. Yeah. Um, I just. I do think that, yeah, it was a lovely time to release a film with a big whopper twist yeah. prior yeah. to... But it was, also, it was also an August release as well. It was a late summer release. Um, and again, like we list the top 10. The top 10 is a pretty solid top 10. Oh, but yeah. at the time, these were all films that, with the exception of Runaway Bride, the studios just dumped this. This was their crap in 1999. It's like, who wants to see Deep Blue Sea? Whoa, everyone. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Hey, now. There are sharks that can cure Alzheimer's. Why would you not want to watch that movie? Yeah. Um, but yeah, and I mean, there's also like in terms of the film, the classification of it as well, because you mentioned as well, it's a lovely warm film. Um, and one of the early discussions with the studio was whether or not this would be an R-rated movie or a PG-13 rated movie. And remarkably, it's a PG-13 rated movie. I'm surprised because there's a lot of bodily fluids in there, not to get too specific. But you see a bit of blood at certain points. You see people vomiting and stuff like that. Um, and but it's a PG thirteen movie. It's a fa- you could you could take the kids to see it almost. Um, I would say <laughs> uh, looking at the only parent at the table. If you're a bad parent. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is. But that's true. And there was I. I was talking to a guy at work about it today, and he said that the scariest moment was when Bruce Willis listens to uh, a tape. A tape. And it's just so many of the scares and the jumps are non-violent, are just yeah. based on sound and atmosphere and suggestion, like the like all the masters do, like Hitchcock yeah. did. Um, it was really. I think no- you mean the next Spielberg. Oh, sorry. Yeah, the next Spielberg. By the way, I've, I've just slow build as well. Yeah, like kind of slow burn, kind of re- 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 um, revealing uh, more and more in a in a very sort of intentional way. By the way, sorry, I'm just looking through my notes here in terms of. You know, let's drag Shyamalan a little bit before we talk about the film, because I just want to get this over and done with. Um, later, Shyamalan allowed adoring sports writer Michael Bamberger to write The Man Who Heard Voices, or How M. Night Shyamalan Risked His Career on a Fairy Tale, which was an account of the making of Lady in the Water that depicted the process as a true artist's righteous quest to prevail over the cowardice and small-mindedness of corporate suits. If that wasn't enough to squander any remaining goodwill, Shyamalan cast himself in Lady in the Water in the sizable role of a genius writer with the capacity to if to uplift humanity with his work. Oh yes, I I remember that, and also he has um, 
a sniveling dickhead film yeah, critic yeah. as a character in the movie. Bob Balaban, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Who gets brutally does, murdered. Does Hulk Hogan brutally murder him? <laughs> no, like in Gremlins 2? Unfortunately not. He, because I remember the film critic's death. It's like, and he's being really snide. He's like, well, if I turn away, I know a jump scare can't follow. Yeah, it's so um, hacky. It's so, yes. And, and then it's it was so meta as well, like that at one stage he goes to see a movie and he's like, well, it sucked because it was formulaic and blah, blah. And he seemed like just a joyless husk of a man. And yeah, you can't wait to see somebody take the starch out of that stuffed shirt. I don't know, so. d- d- Darren in his early days of going to see films, I remember like uh, being going... Go independently going to watch a movie and Darren and like friends were just coming out of this movie. I was like, hey, Darren, how was the movie? And they're like, formulaic. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly the consensus seemed to be that this is a very formulaic kind of movie. At some point, it, 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 obviously, it must have become a word that got banned. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate the idea that you think I set the trend within the group. I do appreciate that. I appreciate the irony of the word formulaic becoming formulaic. formulaic. Yes. Um, all right. So before we jump into the spoilers, and we ask three questions, um, and we'll start with Joe. So first, the three questions is: Do you think that the Sixth Sense belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Yes. Yeah. I think it's excellent. I. I just think it's beautiful, beautifully written, um, directed, acted. Oh, God, props to Bruce Willis. Yeah. Um, really yeah, reminded yeah. me of how great he could be. God, and he's yeah. so great with kids on screen. Um, yeah, I think it's gorgeous and really compelling. Yes. And Andrew? Yes, yeah, no, absolutely. The, 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 um, I, suppose, I suppose Bruce Willis had the experience of being a kid. <laughs> and was able to draw on yeah, that. yeah 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 um, no no a terrific um terrific I, think, I i enjoyed it more than i thought i would was nathan rabin um who i think we talked about earlier but he described how um bruce willis is one of america's most and i love this one of america's most transparent actors in that you can tell exactly how invested Bruce Willis is in the material right. that he's performing at any given moment. Um, oh, it's so true. It is, and like that, Rabin's argument was that one of the things that sells the Sixth Sense is the fact that like Willis, who you have watched phone in movies and who has never been shy about phoning in performances, is like actually invested in this and actually engaged in this, and that allows you as an audience member to kind of go with it. It's like, well, if it's good enough for Bruce Willis. It's good enough for me. It's good enough for him to both make and invest in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I read a review of a relatively recent Bruce Willis movie and it said uh, that he acts as if he had been reluctantly woken up from a nap. <laughs> <laughs> and I just love it. I love the reluctantly bit. And there was a trailer for a film he made with Michael Chiklis uh, that dropped recently and it looked so cheap and so dull and so seen it 50 zillion times before and willis looks so bored and it's so contempt like full of contempt (laughs) for the material he's in and i think it's funny that like if you had like 10 million euro you could probably get bruce willis to be in your movie regardless of whether he thinks it's good Um, so and you don't have to say come on bruce michael chiklis is in it (laughs) (laughs) the commish where do i sign i like chiklis but uh, yeah Yeah. this is another (laughs) yeah the thing uh he's another actor who could do with 
a comeback. But yeah, no, and I, I'm a really big fan of Bruce Willis. I really like him. Yeah. Um, and I remember it was, I think it was David Thompson actually years ago. Um, it was around this time um, said that he could see Bruce Willis one day winning an Oscar. And ironically, he was not nominated for this. Uh, Colette and Osmond were. Oh, really? Yeah. God, they're both super. Um, well, all three of the leads are. Really yeah, all three. But there are a few times uh, Willis put in oscar caliber performances no he did in fairness a few times he did but when he did those it was in movies that were overall really good so pulp fiction i think he's amazing in pulp fiction and it's a great use of his baggage as like an aging action star playing an aging boxer and uh, is a great actor yeah great and a great writer as well um yeah great casting um so it's happened a few times nobody's fool i thought he was terrific in it as well um but Either the movie didn't get sufficient buzz or it got so much buzz that, that like, everyone else won off this. I wonder if he could do it again. As Come back like, again? Like, what if, what if Kevin Smith were to break into his house and say, you ruined me as a director. You didn't listen. Um, that could perk him up. And then, and then the next director that he sees is like, I'm not going to let this director down. Yeah. I'm going to make sure you end up like an M. Night Shyamalan, not like a Kevin Smith. Yeah. Yeah, but he could come back because Looper Maybe. wasn't all that long ago. No, yeah, that was pretty good, actually. Oh, yeah. I loved it. Yeah. Um, and sorry, Andrew, I cut you off there. You yeah, saying. no, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, I'd, 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 um, I'd agree with it being under 250. I, I would agree as well. Um, I think it's a fantastically well made. And watching it again, I was reminded of how well made it is, just in terms of mm. like construction and even like framing composition, the use of reflections, visual motifs, even the like the color red. Um, like we mentioned um, the influence of science, the lambs, the original draft of the script. It was direct, it, the cinematography uh, was from, is it uh, Tak Fujimoto? who is the guy who did the cinematography on Science of the Lambs as well. But it has these vivid reds, these rich colours, these wonderful kind of shots. And I've found how many of the shots I remembered and how many of the shots that weren't even like important to the story, like the sight of a balloon drifting yeah. up a spiral mm. staircase and stuff Not, like that. Yeah. That, uh, is, is, is that overdone? <laughs> the, the red balloon in the movie? Well, back, um, in the, back in the 90s it wasn't. <laughs> Next thing you'll be complaining about rose petals falling from the sky or something like that. Um, but yeah, it was, it was kind of, it's extraordinarily well made and confident. It's very well structured. And again, it's one of those things where it is a movie that speaks, I think, very much the time it was released and the time in which it was made. I think it's very much a 1999 movie. Andrew's looking at me like he's like, I've got my bingo card ready, my Darren 1999 bingo <laughs> oh, card. Oh yeah, go for it. Um, but also Run even like, down. I think, <laughs> no, we're, <laughs> latchkey kids, uh, no fault divorce. Um, but you have this, um, <laughs> it sounds like I'm, a, you know, it sounds like I'm a talking head on a sci-fi produced documentary about M. Night Shyamalan's gift. But I'm like, you know, it, it says something profound about the human condition, I think as well. I think you would be a great talking head yeah, um, on, an, <laughs> on an M. Night Shyamalan documentary. But yeah, I, I definitely agree that it belongs on the list. I'm very happy to see it there and i think like between it's either this or the matrix are my favorite movie of the 1999 season and i don't think i going in i would have said the matrix clears it easily uh which is quite remarkable so good showing for the sixth sense um and joe second question would this be on your own personal 250 if you like any sane person have a list of your favorite 250 movies handy uh would this make i've the got list? it right here funny you should mention that number one uh, start in reverse order please buckle up guys um i would say so i'd say it would sneak in yeah and andrew yeah, I am. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd certainly. Um, after after just having seen it, I wouldn't have thought 
um, before kind of revisiting it last night, uh, I wouldn't have thought that it would necessarily come in. It hadn't been one that 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 uh, particularly kind of. Um, uh, it, I mean, it stayed with me in the sense that I remembered it, yeah. but I didn't remember how good it was. Yeah. I don't maybe didn't appreciate how good it Did was. Did you remember? Was it the twist that you remembered? Sort of. I'm surprised else was- that I liked it more now. Maybe it was too close. At the time, as as as, as a kid who saw yeah. dead people. Well, they, 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 now they, you're more like a child psychologist. They, yeah, they, this this is a movie that's very relatable <laughs> and maybe too uh, rela- relatable uh, at, at 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 the time. Um, and maybe I was like, I hate this guy. I hate this. Uh, I hate this boy. Um, he's rubbish. Um, <laughs> yeah, could you relate to his bully? Yeah. No, I couldn't have made the film about that kid yeah. in the cop syrup. He was an actor. I, yeah, I think my point more is that kind of like I was probably at the point where I didn't like seeing myself <laughs> on screen. Yeah. Wow. And See, that's I, what filmmakers are often trying to do is. Yeah make relatable content right. and you're like boo relatable content <laughs> well yeah but, but it, when like, you're a kid was, who's like when you're was, a kid who's like you know sort of standing out in the street with your little woolly hat on feeling alone it's, it's like it's it took right. me a very long time as an adult to 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 um uh, there were there 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 was a point where i used to kind of like uh um not not uh, i mean i still don't have any kids but when i would think about having kids i would think no that would be a terrible idea because then there would be a little version of me who i would be kind of in charge of and they would go through all of the same horrible stuff that i did uh, because they'll probably be a weirdo as well. Why um, won't the hurting stop? Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's, um, no, no, no. This will be the last. <laughs> the, end, <laughs> the end of the fall of the House of Quinn. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I, interesting enough, it probably wouldn't make my own 250. I would bump up Unbreakable, one of the best American movies of the last 25 years. No, I, I, I would I would much prefer, I actually think Unbreakable is Shyamalan's masterpiece, actually. Uh, I but I think that this is a better the, film. Even with the poochie bit. Even with the poochie bit. I think this is a better made film. I How think long ago a, was it? Uh, it was 2001, right? It was two years after this? Yeah, it was around then, yeah, yeah. not long afterwards. Okay, but I, I and Brucey was in it too. And Brucey and Samuel Jackson. One of the 150 best movies of the last 19 years. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's a, I'm gonna hold you to that. <laughs> it's like it made 151, Andrew. I'm um, but yeah, no, I, I think I personally I prefer Unbreakable, um, but I think The Sixth Sense is a better made film, so I think it belongs on list. Wouldn't make my own 250. And finally, if listeners have not seen The Sixth Sense. And they made it this far in the podcast. Um, would you recommend that they pause the podcast, go out, watch the movie, come back and join us on the side of the spoiler zone? Oh God, yes, a thousand times, <laughs> yes. Run, run, run. Yeah, and and as well, this is a, a movie with a twist. Yes. So do watch the movie. <laughs> yeah, before we first. get to the spoiler. Yeah, if you somehow haven't seen it, I got a sense that you probably this is like um, the Usual Suspect. It's kind of absorbed in the, in, through osmosis in the sense that yeah, they like movies with. Um, which uh, twists uh, will be r- ruined in in pop culture, yeah. like before you'll get to see them. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, you've had 20 years. Yeah. Not yeah. to be, not to judge your listener. Um, <laughs> what are you waiting for? What have you been doing 20 years? Come listening on. to our podcast. Um, Maybe you're a baby. <laughs> <laughs> I lo- I lo- I Don't just, watch this movie if you're a baby. Just like bad parenting would be showing a child a sixth sense and letting them listen to the podcast. Just have them listen to the podcast. Um, anyway, join I love us. the idea of a baby being addressed, correct? <laughs> <laughs> like the baby would be like, hey, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> it's relatable. He says he, he, you know, Andrew says you don't like seeing yourself on film. I quite like hearing myself on What's podcast. Up, cool, baby? I don't know why he sounds New Yorkish. Uh, anyway, join us on the other side of the spoiler zone. Spoiler zone. So, Joe, yeah. what is the sixth sense about for you? Um, I think it's about grief, and it's about um the unfinished business that that's a very obvious thing to say but it's true and ghosts usually like across all culture um like japanese ghost stories or celtic ghost stories or in this very specific case an american uh, philadelphia ghost story philadelphia is kind of a character in the movie yeah it's about unfinished business just like most ghost stories are and um yeah the the appeal or the fantasy of being able to just say that last thing that you didn't get a chance to say or do that last thing. And yeah, I, I love the the internal logic of the movie is that only a very, very, very small percentage of people can help these ghosts solve their problems, which is why most problems don't get solved. So most tragically, like most uh, things that should be said go unsaid. And most people, when their time is up, they didn't get a chance to do or say that thing and um in this film it showed how there was a child a gifted child who could have been able to help families of the deceased and the deceased themselves and didn't get a chance was that child m night Shyamalan? <laughs> sorry <laughs> no <laughs> he just made that up um, <laughs> no, but like the the uh, donny Wahlberg character yes. yeah um vincent so, gray uh, Wahlberg actually so, starved himself for this. Um, oh, really? Yeah, yeah he, he was emaciated. He um, has, yeah, it's one scene um, at the start of the film, but he, he starved himself for five weeks to play the role. Wow. He originally wanted to uh, do the scene entirely naked, which is apparently when the first like age certificate question came up. Okay. Where it was like, okay, fine, tidy whities it is then. Um, but yeah, and uh, but that that's a that was a really neat um, narrative idea uh, for loads of reasons. Um, it kind of gave. Bruce Willis character motivation and stuff yeah. but but also like when when you're watching these kinds of stories sometimes the ones that say like oh there's karma and he'll get his and everyone will get the if you're a good person you'll get rewarded and blah 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 um the world as we know doesn't work that way um but this film sets it up to say okay there are people who can do that but we don't always give them a chance to to make the most of their gift so then you can watch this movie believe that there are ghosts there are people who can help ghosts but because so few of those people exist and those that do have the gift can't use it there's still all those things unresolved in this fantastical world i thought it was so so well constructed it is and and again all that stuff is and it works really well because it's thematically threaded through I think that's, this is yeah. That's another uh, twist. Like yeah. people, when they think of this movie, the big twist is um, Bruce Willis was dead all along. Spoiler. Yeah, yeah. Um, sorry. 
but it, but there's but there's twists all along. Yeah, there's a, like it doesn't reveal straight away. Yeah, that, that Haley Joel Osment can see dead yeah. people. You don't it's just go for, for an oh, hour. Yeah. Yeah. It's like fifty minutes in before you have that famous "I see dead people" scene. But and then discovering that Vincent Gray also could see same, dead. Yeah. People. yeah. Um, oh. And I mean, and that's the thing about it is that, and again, this is one of the things with the advertising of it. I mean, you mentioned the hacky trailer that you saw, which made it look like a kind of a standard horror film. And again, this was one of the issues with selling it. They had no idea how to sell it. It was like one of the posters just listed the five senses. And it's like, but what if there was the sixth sense? And it wasn't until... Starring Tommy Tomasino. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it wasn't until like the film had been out for three weeks that they began running trailers with I see dead people in it. Um, oh, and that's I mean, very interesting. Yeah, and, and they talk about how, like, um, Osmond has talked himself about how when they were filming that sequence, like, for years afterwards, people come up to him on the street and say, I see dead people. But he was saying, like, when he shot it, it was just another scene. He had no idea that was going to be the big money scene for the film because it comes halfway through. It's, you know, the, it's... The whole thing as well. Yeah. Not just the, the, the... Like, I always think about the entire scene. Yeah, where he's mm-hmm. under yeah. the under the... Bed, and he's talking about how like, you know they, sometimes they don't know they're dead, they can't see each other. Which, yeah. by the way, again, is is fantastically structured. All his mm. re- responses to that, it's yeah. like no walking around like regular people. people. Mm. And how how often do you see them? Every day. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. The, like, oh, all the time. All the time. Yeah, I was thinking. Sorry. Kind of, yeah. Sorry, and that Darren misproofs his own argument. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, and even even then, yeah. again, this is the thing with Shyamalan structuring, where like. It's a really good twist in terms of plot because that sets up all the other questions that you'll have at the end when you get to, wait, he was a ghost all along? Because it's like, how, how didn't he know he was dead? And you literally have Haley Joel Osment halfway through the film saying, they don't know they're dead. Mm. And you have him saying, but how come then if he's a ghost, how come he couldn't see other ghosts? Like, they don't see each other. They only see what they want to see. And it's like, mm. It's, it's like that very alien well that only Fred Flintstone can see. <laughs> the great Sazu. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love the idea that this is like, you know, we're going to talk. He sees aliens all the time. <laughs> Walking around <laughs> like regular people. I love the idea that like in a couple of weeks we're going to talk about Fight Club as like Calvin and Hobbes on acid. You know, it's like what if the sixth sense is like the Flintstones great Zazu, but where Zazu is a child, is a social welfare worker played by Bruce Willis. But like, the thing I really like about the film, and it's probably something that, I, like, when I saw it at the time, I thought it was great. I thought it was very clever. And I was kind of wary of it because of the big twist and because Shyamalan became known for twists. And rewatching it, what really, really struck me about it was that I was worried that the twist wouldn't make sense in a plot sense. Because mm. I remember when I watched it as a s- stupid kid, because um, everyone's a stupid kid at the age of 12, mm. I remember being like, yeah, but there was that scene where Cole comes in and, you know, you know, Malcolm's sitting there with his mother and it looks like they're having a conversation. Shyamalan very cleverly didn't show you in the conversation. Mm. So it's, you know, so it's like, technically it doesn't violate the rules. But when I was 12 years old, I was like, that was a punk cheat. Like, I mean, Malcolm's sitting there. Surely he's wondering why Cole's mother hasn't acknowledged him yet. You know, would never but, be so impetuous <laughs> as a 12 year old to say that he was a punk cheat. Um, but yeah, Malcolm <laughs> like, was a good boy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like, as a 12- did he use phrases like punk? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That was a jive ghost. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but yeah, no, like, as, what a a maroon. Kid, as, as a kid, I was sort of like, I would have picked up things like that. But as an adult, I come back to it and it works beautifully thematically. Because again, it's, it's that logic of it doesn't have to make sense. Because again, you have the question of like, what happens to Malcolm when he's not with Cole? And it, the answer is it doesn't matter. The answer mm. is it like, 
you know, you have a scene earlier on where he's meeting Anna for dinner and he's saying, I lost track of time completely. And there's a sense that like, Malcolm doesn't exist when he's not on camera um, in the context of the film. He sees what he wants. Yeah, that's it exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's it's kind of beautiful and elegant and sort of almost it's like poetic. dream logic. And that's it exactly. Kind of, yeah. yeah, when you're dead. <laughs> but it, it is, and it's kind of beautiful like that, and it has this sort of lyrical quality to it. And why it works is, I think you hit the nail on the head when you talked about like ghost stories and the idea that ghost stories are really about... Because again, there was some argument on how to classify this film. This film was based, uh, this film was nominated for Best Picture and uh, Shyamalan for Best Director and stuff like that, which is a rare occurrence for a horror movie in inverted commas. Myself and Andrew, we have a recurring discussion every single year, <laughs> all the time. Um, <laughs> we have a conversation about what we're going to cover each Halloween. And I remember one year I sent the suggestion of The Sixth Sense and Andrew's like, that's not really a horror film. And it was because I remember you're really particular about this. It's like, it has to be a horror film. It's like, okay, let's do Alien. It's like, no, no, no. It has to feature ghosts. It's like, okay, let's do The Sixth Sense. It's like, no, no, no. The Sixth Sense isn't a horror film, Darren. Let's do The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it... it uh, yeah. Ghost Dad. <laughs> ghost <laughs> But like, this isn't... Is this a horror film? Adam's In- Family is the only horror <laughs> film. <laughs> film. But, that but, actually <laughs> would be a good one to cover. But... Uh, is this a horror film? Would we consider this a horror film? Or is this yeah. a dramatic film with horror elements? Or is this, you know... I'd like- say technically a horror film, yeah. Um, like when people who don't... Like, it's it's funny. My, my wife doesn't especially like horror films. And it's really hard for me to tell her whether she'd be able for one because I've become so desensitized to them. But if you talk to everyday people who don't watch drag me to hell for fun uh they they would be spooked by that and their colleagues of mine at work were talking about how scared they were watching this film this in one. cinema yeah yeah, yeah. um so, well, so i mean there's jump scares there's yeah. there's um well there are scare chords for example there's the, well there's the, the moment where the kid turns around and says i'll show you where my father keeps his gun which is <sighs> yeah which that's is a good really, scare yeah. that is a great scare um that works really well as well but i mean I remember like watching this with my mother who would not be a horror movie fan. Like she remembers she went to see The Shining at the age of 18 and that was it. She was done. Um, She (laughs) ruined her. That was it. No more horror movies ever. Um, But she watched Sixth Sense, uh, which surprised me and and thinks it loves it. She absolutely loves it. And she found it very sweet and very moving because she thinks of it more as a kind of a sad story with ghosts in it rather than a horror story of itself. Yeah, that's fair. Um, There was another point I had written down and... I didn't know where to put it in, so here it is. Just throw it out there. Uh, and it's uh, watching it last night. There was a bit where the teacher was teaching the class, saying, "Did you know what this building used to be? It was a courthouse, and it was a real twee history for kids kind of thing." And watching it, and then Haley Joel Osment's character says, um, "They hanged people here, and people were." crying as they're being separated from their families about to be hanged and he's like no that's where this is where judges and lawyers work and he's like that's who hanged them and um (laughs) it's it's an extraordinary scene to watch now in 2019 because um brexit and trump being elected and things like that happening are an exact reflection of or an exact consequence of whitewashing history so people think like uh, to most of the world, uh, when, say, Britain or America was involved in, like, turned up and uh, meddled in their affairs, they were not the good guys. Yeah. Whereas people in school are taught that they are the good guys and right. patriotism is great and all that. And it was really interesting to see in 
2000... some statistic like um, of the 192 nations in the UN, Britain has been involved in action against or within 172 of them. Oh wow, I would I would believe that, um, but uh, that's my fancy way of saying I don't know. Oh, <laughs> um, but no, it's, it's it sounds plausible. So, but no, but it was interesting seeing um, a whitewashing of American history. Um, being challenged in a movie from 1999 and that scene was crazy relevant to right now yeah. and the the entire scene as well plays out amazingly yeah well, it's, they, and they, it sort they, of escalates so fantastic stuttering stanley yeah. stuttering stanley stuttering stanley um which is great i love cole is a fascinating character relatable <laughs> bullying your teacher to have a psychological uh, breakdown. I, breakdown i can vouch for that listeners i can vouch that andrew uh Andrew shares that aspect. This is, this is very much the Andrew is a terrible person podcast. <laughs> that was the twist. The twist is that he was all along. The message needs to get out there. Yeah. Um, but actually, no, because like, and again, this is something that Shyamalan does really well with Osmond. First of all, he gets phenomenally lucky with Osmond as an actor. Osmond is really great as a child actor. Oh, yeah. Um, he's phenomenal here. But even the way in which he's used by Shyamalan, where you constantly have him shot in positions of power. And positions of authority. And like he's written so that he's the character who knows more than all the other characters. He's always in a position of authority. Most obviously it's implied that he knows all along that Bruce Willis is dead. Particularly the conversation that they have after the play. You know where he's doing the sword fighting in the window and stuff like that. It's heavily implied that he's known all along exactly you know what Malcolm is doing and why Malcolm's there and that sort of stuff but even like with regards to stuttering Stanley where he knows about the the history that Stanley has there but even the way in which he's shot uh, which is beautiful like sequences like after that sequence when Malcolm comes into the scene you know Malcolm sits down in a regular chair but Cole is sitting there in this gigantic sort of leather bat sort of wonderful sort of like just lounging round, not particularly impressed by Malcolm's terrible magical tricks. But even the bit later on, after Malcolm's listened to the tape of Vincent and he's heard the Latin voice on there, when he comes to the church, you have that wonderful low angle shot where Cole is up on the sort of like balcony in the church with the figures. And again, it's this wonderful juxtaposition of like Haley Joel Osmond, who is, you know, what, less than a meter tall, Mm -hmm. is kind of literally towering over Bruce Willis and looks it uh, in the way the film is kind of shot and edited. It's it's fantastic filmmaking. Oh, out of the depths, I cry to you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, 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 Haley Joel Osment. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, but again, and again, it's it's just it's a really great, really assured performance. But actually, back to to what you were saying there about this idea of history and what we don't talk about. Because um, again, that's a big recurring motif of the film. And what really struck me watching it this time, and I kind of alluded to this in terms of i think it's a very 99 movie uh, but i also think it's a very universal movie and i think it's a universal movie in the sense that recently there's been this big spate in kind of nostalgia for 70s horror films uh, and thinking in particular of films like say the conjuring franchise which is kind of evoking like the exorcist and stuff like that but even say even say things like um to pick an example the the aster films like hereditary and like um what's the other one midsummer, um, midsummer. Uh, which are very much in the style of things like Don't Look Now or The Wicker Man, kind of evoking that sort of style of 70s horror. It's funny because um, this is, this is it's like a seven, this is a 70s horror and this yeah. is a period horror. But it's also yeah. a 99 a, film as well. Like it, yeah. And it follows one of those. Yeah, and Babadook it. as well. Yeah, have these sort of, and they feel like they're sort of riffing on that. What The Sixth Sense does really well is Ooh, it... In man- Fabric. In, <laughs> I haven't seen In Fabric. I'm really looking it's forward to it. It's very good, very good. Um, but what... <gasps> 
We must address that. <laughs> oh, I'll make it so. Um, but yeah, we have this. Um, but like, the, <laughs> thanks, Andrew. The Sixth Sense. Uh, I do appreciate the pity laugh. But the Sixth Sense has this sort of like it. It builds on these kind of seventies anxieties because a lot of the seventies films were rooted in anxieties, like the the advent of no fault divorce or. The idea that, you know, you had these kids whose mothers were working now and who were coming home and having to take care for themselves. And yes, Andrew, perhaps the fact that Moon Landing had been a big disappointment and completely disillusioned an entire generation of Americans. Is that what you want to hear? Um, but no, more, more to the point, to be entirely serious, though, like a lot of these films like The Exorcist, The Exorcist is a like it's a it's a we're going to talk about it for Halloween with Bernice Murphy. Actually, I'm quite excited mm. about that. But one of my, and I'm kind of very interested to hear her thoughts on it, but one of my reads in The Exodus, one of the things that I've kind of turned it over in my head, is this fear of single motherhood or single parenthood. And this idea of like fear of liberalism and this idea of like, you know, reaping kind of the, the, the sins of the 60s and having that sort of come back and having to retreat back to kind of conservative values and stuff like that. And again, in The Sixth Sense, you have something vaguely similar. I don't think it's quite as knee-jerky as that. Where the sixth sense, like the sixth sense, is repeatedly and very consciously, and I joked about this. Um, I joked about this when I watched it last night. Looking at movies like Don't Look Now, The Exorcist, or you know, sort of, or even like The Sixth Sense or The Shining, to pick a couple of examples, is there anything that scares Americans more than the thought of divorce? Um, because, like, at its core. The Sixth Sense is a story about fundamentally dysfunctional families. And in fact, it's notable that like on the top of both Vincent's file and on the top of Cole's file, Malcolm has scrawled status parental divorce as the most important factor in their lives. The biggest ghost, I think Emily Todd Vanderwerf has argued that the biggest ghost in the film is actually Cole's father, who is now living with oh, Pittsburgh yeah. and living with a toll booth operator in Pittsburgh who's gone. There's this recurring speculation that his mother isn't able to cope. She's working two jobs, but it's also implied that, you know, there may be some suspicion that she's inflicting harm, that the scars that are manifesting on him are a result of her actions. Now, Malcolm doesn't believe it, but the doctor, who's played by M. Night Shyamalan, believes that that might actually be a possibility and things like that. But th- th- but those I don't are two kind of red herrings. Like they, I, I know, I know that this isn't a movie about people who see dead people, <laughs> but 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 like for me, it was all about how um, childhood is the most traumatic like time of life. Well, I mean, even apparently, in- apparently, in like, I think we spoke about this recently or in the future. No, I think it was recently. <laughs> it was recently um, about how uh, childhood is inherently. Yes, um, traumatic and terrifying. Yeah. I mean, but I mean, even outside even for of... people who seem to have great childhood. <laughs> Why are you looking at me so intensely when you say no, that? No, no, no. You, I, I, uh, this, this is a recurring uh, thing on 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 the two fifty. Is Darren revealing that he doesn't remember having a terrible childhood? <laughs> <laughs> I thought my childhood was okay. I thought, yeah, it was. Well, I had like a great was... home life. Yeah. <laughs> like, but school was just like kids are terrible. Yeah, kids so, are terrible. Now, primary school was fine for me. Secondary school. Was was not yeah. great yeah. um so people have different it's very i'd perfectly i'd say reasonably contented like up until secondary school then secondary school was very tough but and the, then after secondary school it kind of leveled off yeah. again yeah the thing is though that I, I like i think even i who had a good sense of like um not enjoying uh primary school didn't realize or had for, forgotten or chosen not to remember so much 
uh, stuff that I I, don't, on, on, I like only kind of discovered like um, uh, like accidentally like uh, uh, true true skill I think a lot of the, 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 a, a lot of um, stuff kind of gets left out when you're kind of remembering it the, well you edit you edit your memories we talked about this in the podcast yeah. before where when you remember something you rewrite it again very similar to what it's Malcolm's doing the helplessness doing. of being yeah. a child and not being kind of taken seriously yeah. or and um, and everything is a threat to you as a child yeah like, yeah um yeah, and well, you have no authority and you have no power. Like again, that's the thing with Cole. Cole has this gift, but he has no ability to actually use it. He has yeah. no no grounding know or how to, yeah. yeah. Um but no, that's, He needs a father. He need, yeah. that, that's it. He literally needs like he needs Malcolm to to come in and and kind of guide him to a certain extent. Mm. Um sorry. But but no, like when that is true about being a child that things are you're constantly being made aware of threats and um, don't stay out after dark watch out stranger for passing, danger strangers watch out for passing cars watch out for bigger kids like watch out for dogs like ev- like danger don't is everywhere don't leave the yard yeah don't yeah. leave my line of sight um, yeah yeah danger is everywhere and you you're so strangers constant. were sometimes great as kids this one old man bought me a can of lilt it's great my mother was like deeply concerned it was like what <laughs> you're not touching that can of lilt <laughs> ever again um but i mean it's <laughs> evidence <laughs> upon his fingerprints off it that sort of evaporate his palm print evaporating off it like that hand on the surface of the table so yeah i got you a can of lilt where are you going <laughs> <laughs> But uh, it is it is worth noting though, like in terms of of this stuff though, in terms of and particularly in terms of the relationship between child and parent, like you say, it's a red herring. I I think it's more a thematic thing because obviously it's notable that the the one ghost that you see Cole actually helping is played by Misha Barton from the OC. But right. it's a story of a child who is actually being abused by a parent. She's being kept sick Munchausen by proxy. Mm. Yeah, she's being like fed drain cleaner. I think it is by her mother in order to keep her sick, and she's died. And the mother started moving on to victimize the other kind of child. So you have this kind of idea of the home as a twisted place. But even Malcolm, who I would argue is more of the protagonist, or is at least you know Malcolm is an interesting character because he initially seems like he's just a window into Cole's story. But as the story kind of progresses, it becomes clearer and clearer, and particularly at the end, that it is Malcolm's story to a certain extent. It's his journey. It's like Cole wraps up his arc. Like for part of the movie that we're following Cole. Yeah. Uh, and 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 yeah, and and that um, it's it and 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 various scenes kind of like pass until Malcolm appears Malcolm again. Reappears. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the thing is, like Malcolm and Anna again, and it, it's worth noting again there separation his ghosting her in a very literal sense um is framed in terms of divorce it's she's having an affair it looks like initially but even things like how he discovers that he's dead at the very end when he goes to visit her and after cole tells him to talk to her while she's going asleep how he figures out that she's dead is she says why did you leave me not why did you die why did you leave me and then she drops his wedding ring and it spools across the floor and it's very much, and again, all of this stuff is tied. And I know, I know it is a red herring. I know it's a very clever plot function. And I know it's, but it is a metaphor and it seems a very thematically relevant one. It's this idea of kind of a broken family unit, a family unit that's not working. And it's not just like Cole's absent father. It's the fact that Malcolm is an absent husband. And again, this is perhaps because like, Next week, we're going to be talking about American Beauty with uh, Roanoke and with Charlene. And the week after, we're going to be talking about Fight Club with Alex and with Charlene. So I feel like it's probably worth pausing to note 
perhaps one of the most sensitive portrayals of masculinity in a 1999 movie. Because Malcolm is a fascinating portrayal of, like, a masculine character. Particularly played by Bruce Willis, because we, we talked about this, where Bruce Willis, as like, you, you were talking there when you interviewed Olivia Williams, and she was like, I didn't think you'd make any money because Bruce Willis wasn't carrying a gun. Mm. Like, it's an incredibly vulnerable, sensitive, like, quiet performance. So low-key, so restrained, and so against type. Um mm. Well, it's, his career is so weird because he started off as Moonlight like a, as comedy. Yeah, it's the kind of role like Matthew Perry would have played like in Moonlighting. Yeah. And then he was cast against type as an Die action hard, guy. Yeah. Then he was an action guy for like 10 years. <laughs> and then he did things like this, like The Sixth Sense. And even Bonfire the Bandies as well. Was he in that, if I remember? That's right, he was. And he did Breakfast of Champions as well. There was a stage mm. where it was like Bruce Willis wants an Oscar. Yeah, or he... It's that I don't know. I think it was before Die Hard. I'm guessing. No, the, it was between Die Hards. So really? the, so the so the, he was still doing the comedy sort yeah. of thing. Yeah, he's dabbling. So he he um his career was basically Die Hard film, couple of flops, Die Hard film. He's back on top again, <laughs> and that happened like four times. Like right. So so he's had loads of flops. Um. And then every now and again, he hits pay dirt with something like 12 Monkeys, which is yeah. great. But I think he, when he did, um, who was it he made Breakfast of Champions with? It was somebody quite interesting. Was it Bob? Shall we go to the fact machine? Uh, yeah, wait, okay, was it Bob Rafelson? I can't remember. Um, but it, he um, he's worked with, he tried to work with Woody Allen and he got fired from that film. And uh, he's worked with John McTiernan and Walter Hill. And I Terry Gilliam, like proper directors. Yeah. So he's Breakfast of Champions, by the way, was a nineteen ninety nine film and it was directed by Alan Rudolph. Alan Rudolph, that's right. He did a couple of Alan Rudolph movies. Um so I actually saw that film as well. It's okay. Um, uh, Breakfast of Champions. I remember Breakfast of Champions discovering it on Sky, which is odd because Sky didn't show movies. Huh. And as a fourteen or fifteen year old kid, this was a very strange movie for Sky to be showing. Very strange, yeah. Um but yeah, he always seemed to have an eye on like interesting directors uh, mm. Robert Benton he'd worked with a couple of times as well and uh, so yeah it's he's kind of an interesting guy in that he's you at first glance you do think he's a total hack like who's happy to make like Hudson Hawk and like endless bad marauders um or yeah. attack on Wall Street yeah those that kind of thing um Death Wish by Eli Roth. Yeah, Eli Roth. Eli Roth is a terrible filmmaker. And um, so, yeah, you think that he's just this sellout hack. But then when you look deeper, you see all these uh, interesting directors. Uh, supposedly for uh, Pulp Fiction, he I remember seeing an interview with Quentin Tarantino. And he said that Willis approached him like at yeah. some party, some do or whatever. And he was like, oh, yeah, I really like Reservoir Dogs. And um, just <laughs> and just started talking to him about like Reservoir Dogs and asking what he was doing next. And then he got that like really plum role. And there was, um, I think Sylvester Stallone was being considered for that role. The oh, okay. Butch and Pulp Fiction role. And a Very different film. Yeah, but he would have been great as well. Um, but, you know, like, so, yeah, there's a, there's a bit, there's interest in good filmmakers surfaces occasionally <laughs> across his like 30 year career. I love this idea that it's just a cycle. It's like, you know, there's a point at which he's interested. There's a point at which he needs a paycheck and there's a point at which he desperately wants to get back on top. Yeah. And it's like, so at this stage, we're kind of in the post Michael Bay stage where it's like, he can do whatever he wants. Yeah. He doesn't, he's not do another like sequel to another sort of, uh, yeah, another diehard sequel for at least another six years, right? Ooh, well, he was going to be doing one soon until... 
Disney bought Fox and then shelved a hundred movies, oh, yeah. uh, which happened. Um, but he, oh, I was going to say, I was going to say something about the uh, the diehard trajectory there. Is that yeah, he does. He shows interest every few years. Oh, this is what I was going to say is that about five or ten years ago, I saw Bob Dylan in concert, and uh, he was shite. And he, yeah, he's such a frequent experience for Bob Dylan concerts. Oh, yeah. Well, well, amazing. When he played with Neil Young, um, like this year or last year, I was like, well, Neil Young is like 50% chance of being good, and Bob (laughs) Dylan has got like a 0% chance of being good. But my point is, Dylan is he seems not to enjoy performing, and he's always touring, always, always, always touring, and just sits there and grumbles his way grumpily through his hits and charges people 100 quid a ticket and um bruce willis is similar in that like why are you making these <laughs> films that you're not enjoying making? Money trouble yeah, like, yeah yeah is demi more yeah. like that did much you, with the alimony did, oh. you, did you go all in with nicholas cage on that sort of like on the haunted mansion yeah the haunted mansion <laughs> in new orleans there's this show yeah where bruce willis and nicholas cage go around kind of Trying to buy dinosaur skeletons. (laughs) (laughs) Having them repossessed by Mongolian government. Um, But yeah, actually... Literally looking for the Holy Grail. (laughs) (laughs) But I I do... I like this... I like this idea of kind of masculine... I like the sensitivity of Malcolm as a character. Because he is... He's portrayed as somebody who is gentle and caring and very soft. And he's... Particularly in his scenes with Osmond and, and with Cole... The kind of interplay between them is very affectionate. It's very, it's very soft and it's very compassionate. Like, and most of the time, Malcolm, very incremental. Yeah, like what, I mean, that sequence. What did one. you guys think of the exposition plaque at the beginning? Where did they, so, well, <laughs> they? I am president of the United States. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, they called I, I liked it because I throughout the whole thing. Um, I feel like um, uh, uh, Dr. Crow was thinking about Dr. Seuss <laughs> and trying to figure out like what he would say at yeah. the end. I would not drink it in a mug. I would not drink it in a... Thank goodness she read the entire plaque. <laughs> it was kind of flummoxed. I like that for two reasons. First of all, the fantastically Hitchcockian, over-the-top, ridiculous framing of it, where it's like, let's catch the two of them in reflection while reading the exposition on this plaque, which is the most artful shot of, like, exposition that I've ever seen. But even things like, it's also wonder... And again, Andrew's going to look at me and say, Darren, (laughs) but uh, it's thematic exposition as well, because, like, she pauses and she says, they called you their son. Almost as if the theme of, like, father and sons would be important in this movie, perhaps. But even things where she says, you put everything second, including me. And by the way, I I absolutely love, like, I think the the film's climax is amazing. And part of that's the score. If this isn't important to you, then what was all that about? Yeah. 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 But even even the and again the climax of the film is, is beautifully it's edited the soundtrack's amazing but part of me does having rewatched it twice in the last couple of days go when he goes you were never second and it's like dude the A plot of this movie was you doing your job the B mm-hmm. plot was you not talking to your wife you really don't get to wander in at the climax of the film and say you were never the B plot of my life. It's like, I've just watched an entire movie where she was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like, there's also, there's, it could be argued that 
it's important to tell people what they yes. want to hear like if they she may never hear from him again you know so <laughs> so like i love that you made the ending really dark it was very sweet and enlightening it's like and tony collette's mum wasn't proud but i i want to tell her i'm proud i guess yeah. Yeah. Haley joel osmond sitting there while his grandmother smokes in a cigarette talking about how disappointed she was yeah it's the things that men do not for their own sake but for the sake of what women, what they think women will think of them so for him it's like oh it's really important that she thinks i'm this uh, great child psychologist and i've totally ruined that so i need to get that back and then she'll like me again whereas like maybe she liked you for just who, who you are independently of that that's an interesting point yeah, yeah. that totally could be it yeah. but it could be like he i can see the conflict of being being a good child psychologist and being a good husband because childless he, as well yeah, yeah yeah childless interestingly um but yeah there's you as was a, he really childless or did he just have lots of children oh are you saying he was like a philanderer no, no, no. <laughs> talking metaphorically oh right right <laughs> was like oh, yeah. all the hints were there yeah. <laughs> it all just pieces no. together that was Shyamalan's alternate cut the studio only sees that what he wants to see <laughs> yeah. he's uh, like walking home and it's like this he only is your sees, son <laughs> <laughs> he only sees who he wants to see yeah. uh, that's a different movie no, That's but the six 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 sense. But um, there's he can't as the movie like explicitly says at the start, he can't save every child, and yeah. there's only so much mm. time and dedication uh, he can do. And even if he gives everything, he literally gives his life to it, it still can't be enough. So there's, but he still wants to be a dedicated husband. So there is the the conflict, and he, even if he worked too hard or spent too much time away from home his wife could well have been the forefront of his mind and mm. uh, as you said andrew could be to deem himself worthy of her as well that he's doing this that ended up alienating her um and also actually just in terms of this it's worth noting again i, I kind of said this was a universal film to a certain extent it's also a kind of a 90s it's a very 90s film to a certain extent it's very anchored in kind of the anxieties and fears of the late 90s because it's very much a film about being disconnected and like again definitely uh, my fears of the 1990s <laughs> and uh, being disconnected from uh, yeah that uh, uh, first the kickball thing yeah really okay. because because like i'd always get picked last yeah. or, 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 second uh, last because uh, i don't i got, I got picked well, last. Well, yeah yeah this was when we weren't going to school together but they and again like the one day where i get got to uh play um outfield and 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 score the goal and literally like it and everybody being amazed that this kid that they hated like had scored a goal and they're like, oh, look, like we, we, we never let you play and you scored a goal. You're a natural and lifting me up on their shoulders. Let me oh. take a kind of, um, That's actually this really is the sweet. best day ever. Is this tomorrow, one of those false stories? Tomorrow will, <laughs> tomorrow will not be like this. Uh, <laughs> Savor yeah. it while you can. Yeah. Um, anyway, I think it was because I had the ball. <laughs> I was like, well, this, the ball is mine. So I might um, as well go for it. No, like, like um, as in, uh, I'm, I'm bringing the ball, so I'm not getting <laughs> okay, picked last. this yeah. time. 
Um, but it is it is worth noting in terms of that, like because it, it's very much a film about being disconnected, and you have this recurring motif. You have all these again the framing, the way it's done, in which the characters are often made to look small, but also isolated. The kind of those wonderful sort of atmospheric shots of like shadows and, and negative space around them, but even dialogue as well, where like the question is like, what do these ghosts want? Because you have Haley Joel Osmond. Our Cole can, is the only person who can see them. You have these people who want to be heard in the world, but can't, who can't speak to the people they want to speak to, who are feeling isolated and withdrawn and unable to communicate. And, and the, even the, like, yeah, and it's this thing about kind of dead, dead people can't speak. So like we kind of tell our own stories, stories around stories about mm. them. Like, like I can imagine the, the story about, um, Oh yes, um, your aunt that we don't talk about. She was very troubled, but no mention of the abuse that she suffered. Yeah. You know, and um, yeah, yeah uh, um, sorry. I mean, in, in, in the context of the film, I'm not talking to the listener. <laughs> um, um, yeah, but I mean, even even things like yeah, the ghosts can't see each other. But even the way people are, because you have this conversation. Like Tony Collette is phenomenal here, and a lot of her scenes with Osmond. By the way, she's wearing a wig for the whole thing. Ah, um, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, she shaved her head. I don't know whether it was for... And, and Shyamalan doesn't know even now whether it was for a role or whether it was just for kind of giggles. Um, but yeah, she came into the audition. She was bald. But so she's wearing a wig for the whole whole film. Um, but you have even like the scenes where she's talking to Cole and she's saying, you know, if we can't talk to each other, we're not going to make it. And that sequence at the end when they're in the car together and he turns to her and he says... I'm ready to communicate with you now. And you have this idea of like it being as hard to talk to another human being who is physically there in mm. the same space as you living and breathing as it is to talk to the spirits or talk to the ghosts and how kind of weird and alienated and how sort of like disconnected everybody feels, which is something that I kind of associate again with the late nineties with movies, like say the matrix where you have this idea of the entire world is just a facade or a veneer and it's all sort of fake and you are the only person who can see the truth or whatever. But you know, even, even things like, you know, the dark city, you know, existence, the Truman show, that's that sort of stuff. The idea of things not being real, people not being who they appear to be and not being able to talk to them. It's worth noting that uh, at the end of the 90s, there was a slight uh, boom in horror cinema. Um, in particular, so, I mean, obviously this and The Blair Witch came out at the same time as well. The Haunting, which was supposed to be a big trial balloon for blockbuster horror cinema, which didn't work at all. The not Catherine Zeta-Jones yes. one? Oh, I saw that movie. It's, yeah, it's not, not great. Good. No, it's um, not good at all. Jan de Bont. Yeah. Wow, yeah. Um, uh, I wonder if the like mini boom of horror was related to pre-millennial yeah. tension. Yeah. Everyone was scared like planes would fall from the sky. and Yeah, the world was going to end. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Which have... ironically, the world is going to end now and people <laughs> yeah. are real like nonchalant. That's, that's about what it. Office Space is about, yeah. isn't it? Uh, at its uh, core. A, a guy preparing um, uh, for Y2K. For Y2K. Oh, that's yeah. right, yeah. Uh, but I mean, yeah, so even like David Kep's Stir of Echo starring Kevin Bacon. Oh, good movie. Yes, I actually really like that one as well. Stigmata, which came out the week after this was released, mm. which was, I, I quite liked it at the time. I imagine it hasn't aged particularly well. It's like a metal video. <laughs> yes, that's it, exactly. Uh, but again, you have this, the paradox of it is, though, is that like traditionally horror movies do well 
in periods of time of social anxiety. Like, so in periods of time where, and again, this is things like the economy. So, like, in the 70s, during the recession, you had this huge boom in horror cinema. And Stephen King... Also, like, Vietnam and yeah, stuff. Yeah, like. Watergate and all that other yeah. stuff. I mean, you have, and again, you have this sort of trauma. Even after 9-11, you had the boom in body horror and in sort of torture porn horror, stuff like Hostel and, and those sort of things. Or even found footage, which deliberately evoked... Well, I don't know if it deliberately evoked, but it evoked, like, the footage of 9-11 and first responders and the way in which that mm. was seen through video cameras and stuff like that. And what's interesting about the late 90s and one... And soldiers' body cam. Yeah, and that sort of stuff as well. What's interesting about the late 90s one that we're talking about there is that, like, again, this was a time things were relatively good, you know, like the, you know, people were making lots of... Drawing pictures of rainbows. That's it, exactly, yeah. 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 And dogs... Kind of, uh, Nobody has meetings about rainbows. No. Um, yeah, you yeah. Have, you have this kind of moment. That was a fabulous line. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. And like, his the delivery. delivery of that incredible. Mm. Yeah, but again, you have so, this, such intensity. Yeah, and you have this thing in the nineties where you know everything's fine, everything should be great. Why aren't we all happy? Mm. And like it shines through all these films, like American Beauty, as you talked about, but even yeah. like Fight Club. But even here, there's an element of that. It's of cool. ennui. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, Dennis Leary has like a 90s comic and one of his 90s routines um, was talked about how people talk about not being happy anymore. And he's like, well, nobody's happy. Like, <laughs> and then it was when people started talking about taking Prozac and then you'd hear about like celebrities taking antidepressants and stuff. So I think it, while it wasn't as tangible and immediate as like the now. likes of 9-11 or now, mm. um, yeah, there was an on we, I think. Well, yeah. it's it's like the a, another kind of nineties comedy. It's 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 George Costanza saying God doesn't want me to be happy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everything is going well. It's like kind of there is this sense of dread. It's like yeah. this can't last, mm. and it he didn't. Only, <laughs> yeah. He only believed in God for the bad stuff. Yeah. <laughs> well, that is not Vince Gilligan's line, which is I don't know if I believe in a heaven, but I have to believe there's a hell. Um, <laughs> Which is uh, sent for there. Oh, by the way, the wig that Tony Collette wore, yeah. it was from Velvet Goldmine because the Sixth Sense couldn't afford its own wig. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Is that true? Yeah, that's according to Shyamalan it is. Oh, I just, speaking of wigs, um, <laughs> I, I actually remember, uh, this, it's a really big problem of mine is that I, I remember the most inane, ridiculous things. And you'll fit, you fit on this podcast perfectly. <laughs> very few of like the real thing. Like I don't, I don't know my bank account number off by heart. <laughs> But I know this Billy Crystal couplet from the Oscars the following year. And he's so he's, you know, when he does a song about like the all the best picture oh, nominees. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he said the, the Sixth Sense one goes something like um, the Sixth Sense was about a kid who saw things that weren't there, like Bruce Willis with hair. <laughs> 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 I still remember that. It was. It looked very much like, uh, like Bruce Willis losing his hair, but it was probably a hairpiece. Yeah, he's got more hair in this than he has in Die Hard with a Vengeance. Yeah, yeah. Um, and even like Twelve Monkeys around the same time, although obviously he was shaven for that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think that they did it quite cleverly in that. That's where the forty million dollar budget a, went. Yeah, exactly. Give a full head of hair. Yeah, yeah, but that's a good idea because if it had been like uncanny, luxuriant, and, <laughs> yeah, people, if that like one Nicolas would have been Cage and Con Air. Yeah, I'm now I'm imagining the opening scene playing very differently, where they're staring at the reflection, except he's really just flicking his hair yeah. in the reflection <laughs> exactly. of that gold, uh, silver-plated plaque. 
Um, but yeah, it kind of, it, it really does kind of speak to that. And you have this sort of like recurring motif of, there's even the little bit where he's talking about his toy soldiers. Um, and he's like, and I love that, that uh, Malcolm's like, uh, so do your soldiers speak Latin? And Cole's response is just one, mm. which is, again, is that idea of somebody who can talk, but who doesn't have anybody to talk to, who doesn't oh, have anybody yeah. they can relate to, doesn't have anybody they can actually communicate to in a meaningful way. It's, it's, it's interesting when he, he says, are you a good doctor? <laughs> And the response there is like, yes, uh, very good doctor. I realize you're a child. Yeah, I realize you're a child. and need to be comforted. He said that he was. Exactly. He he said he used to be. Yeah. 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 Which is is not like inspiring any great confidence. Yeah. But maybe that's what endears him to. Exactly. I'm the best kid. If you can't can't get better on my watch, you really are a freak. Yeah, exactly. I'm a hotshot top gun child psychologist. Um, pretty good, um, but one day I have a crisis of confidence. Um, I, I love the idea that yeah, that the the more extreme version of the mind reading game is like uh, you know, and if you reach the door, uh, there's also a gun in a little box there. You can feel free to use that. Oh yikes! <laughs> Sorry, that was very dark. Yes, very 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 dark. I apologize for that. Um, but yeah, it just... It's uh, just because this movie makes you think of your childhood. And... <laughs> but I mean, even in terms of that also, and again, maybe Darren's reading too much into things. Never. What? I know. But this recurring motif of... Food re- waste. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, and inappropriate smoking. Um, <laughs> a lot of inappropriate smoking in the school theatre. Mm. Um, that's the the the, the, the burn victim. The, the 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 obligatory Robocop reference is the slow reveal of the of the, the extent of the burn. Like oh. The slow reveal of Robocop. <laughs> <laughs> everything like, goes back to everything me. comes back to Robocop. But it, it's more in terms of, and again, I wonder if this is reading too much in. But the emphasis the movie places on kind of mediated images, so the idea of videotapes and photographs. And like recordings and stuff like that. So you Watching mentioned like the grain on, on, the, on the on the video footage the, and stuff yeah, like that. Like I mean, sure. even at the end, it's the like it's the shot of the wedding video that you're watching, for example. And but in the play, yeah, where everyone has at their the video camera staring forward mm. as well, and you have that shot of Bruce Willis standing in the aisle, and you're wondering why nobody's telling me to get down. It's like I should have known all along. Well, yeah. But e- even things like the idea. Of, I know you're a ghost, but I can't see through <laughs> yeah, yeah. you. <laughs> But even even things like yes, so the the fact that he you point out one of the most intense or scary scenes is him listening to a tape recording, for example. But yeah. even Cole, as we alluded to earlier, talking about drawing pictures and like how he filters his view of the world through pictures, and he's learned that he can if he draws what people expect him to draw, then he won't get in trouble or he won't generate controversy or anything like that. But even like the scene of his mother looking at the pictures and seeing the little kind of lens flary effect that happens to be in all of them watching over Cole, for example. Mm. And I'm wondering if there's something in that in terms of this idea or theme of disconnect where we're all kind of looking at the world through these images or screens or filters and we're all sort of, again, kind of, and it may be in some ways a prescient film in some respects like that, but the way in which kind of everybody puts their own kind of lens or view. They only see what they want to see. And you have this recurring motif of looking and how much that's true for people as much as it is for ghosts. I think that's a really good point. But Ah. I think it's more that all of those things you listed and described is more about, um, I don't know, like the detritus, the the footprints we leave when... uh, when we go and um, they talk about this scene where Olivia Williams is trying to sell 
a really expensive oh, ring. Rings. One of the, I think the only real comedy scene in the movie, like, and she said like, You mean uh, a cheaper ring for your cheaper wife? Yes. And, uh, for your plain wife. There we your go. Your plain yeah. wife. Uh, and she says that, uh, everyone leaves a, f- a fingerprint. And, um, it reminded me of John Updike has, has a really lovely short story called My Grasshopper Brother. And it's about these two brothers-in-law. They're two really different guys who go out with sisters. And one of them is very spendthrift and he's always like taking them on group holidays and he's always taking pictures and videos of them and everything. And the other one is much more level-headed and is saving money. And you think it's a parable of, you know, the ant and the grasshopper. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But the frivolous brother ends up becoming really ill and passing away. And then the um, more reserved brother has this big bank of video cassettes and photographs and diaries and memories to settle him in for the winter ahead. So it turns out that the yeah, grasshopper the, was right all yeah, along. That, that the grasshopper was actually the ant because yeah. he was saving all of these memories and accumulating mm. all of these things for the cold, dark winter ahead. And the, yeah, this, um, the theme of the recordings and the the notes and the pictures and so on yeah i think it's more about that i think it's more about the the detritus that we gather and leave behind as we go even though your point is really good i'm sorry no 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 really really good point um in terms of the film is there anything else we want to talk about anything we haven't discussed already actually yeah one more thing which is um its footprint on pop culture in general yes so it turned up in 51st dates and um, it was mentioned, I watched a really good movie recently called Blind Spotting. Do you know it? Yes, this is the um, one in Detroit about the two guys, um, if I correctly, is it? No, it's LA. Oh, LA. Okay, oh, sorry, sorry, no, San Francisco. Um, and, oh, it's um, gentrification, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's about um, two best friends, a black guy and a white guy who are working in, uh, is it Oakland, just over the bridge from San Francisco? And hmm. it's uh, like getting gentrified and how it's changing and how the world is even if you're a blue collar removal guy, the world is still much fairer to white guys than to black guys. Um, but there's a the white guy in this is a real wheeler dealer. So like if he's uh, he's in his friend's mother's house and she has a box of old um, straighteners and he's like, oh, were you going to throw these out? And then he sells them to the local hairdressers. Um, but there's a when he's doing the sales pitch to the hairdresser to this like black woman on the hairdresser and um, she said i don't like surprises i don't like suspense <laughs> and, and uh yeah so his like if it wasn't for the six cents 20 years ago that joke wouldn't have been in that movie also in 51st dates um where drew barrymore is an amnesiac and Adam Sandler has to win her heart over and over again because she has amnesia. And they watch The Sixth Sense repeatedly and everyone around Drew Barrymore has to pretend to be really shocked at the surprise. And then finally, I actually wrote um, a note here and the note says, Jizz in my pants. Yeah, so for people who don't know the context, it's... There's Joe a, got very excited. Uh, yeah. Oh, well, also, there's a, 
there's a song by Lonely Island, which is uh, Andy Samberg's uh, kind of novelty comedy band called Jizz in My Pants. And Bruce Willis was dead at the end of Sixth Sense. I jizzed in my pants. Oh, list to terrible sex. <laughs> was Book Judy ending. in the Bottle an ode to terrible sex? I like that we're circling no, back around. Judy in the Bottle is about abstinence. No, no, like you've got to rub me the right way. It's a story of a woman. Okay, sorry, I'm, we're, this, we're, this is a very tar- Tarantino <laughs> moment. It's like, no, let, let me, me tell, tell you. you what Genie in the Bottle is about. It's about this girl, right? And she's had so much bad sex. <laughs> Terrible sex. Never gotten off on it. Waiting for someone to release me. She's just she's been with guys. They've been all about themselves. You're licking your lips, I'm blowing kisses my way. Starting to feel very disillusioned with it. I feel like I've been locked up tight. What she needs is she needs to meet this guy. And he's got to have a big dick, right? You gotta make a big impression. <laughs> <laughs> I went, come, come, come on in, let me out. No, no, I'm, I'm actually like entirely serious. I'll include a link in the show notes in terms of breaking down lyrics and stuff like that. But this the, is your chance to say, I'm not kidding. <laughs> of course. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it is actually. I always thought it was about, um, I'm not going to put out unless it's a really special guy. That's a, I thought. Well, I mean, that's that's what it was argued at the time it was about. Again, this is the thing. And again, this feels appropriate given next week we're going to be talking about American Beauty, where you have this weird fixation on young, blonde, teenage girls who are at once incredibly sexy and sexually suggestive, while also being presented and marketed as being pure and kind of like virginal to an extent and you have this dichotomy between the two so as far as aguilera was concerned and again she had to change the lyrics in american beauty american beauty was the story of yeah of 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 like an ex-tina who who was who was actually um quite innocent and the song wasn't about sex at all (laughs) (laughs) but uh no because i mean even uh like for malaysia they had to change the lyrics of genie in the bottle to from to, you have to treat me the right way huh. and oh, got changed to heartbeats moving at the speed of light for the Malaysian market and stuff like that but again if, if you read the lyrics there's there's various kind of you can you can read a lot into it if you, if you feel that way inclined I'm totally looking up the lyrics <laughs> as a result of that um, just just quickly before Genie we... got replaced with Eunuch <laughs> <laughs> for that Malaysian release um, it is worth noting actually by the way um those scenes in Haley Joel Osment's room, um, and a lot of this was shot in sets, and it was shot in again in an abandoned psychiatric hospital in Whoa. Philadelphia, which is great. Um, apparently, the kids had a wonderful time doing it, and they talk about scenes where like there was a lot cut from the film, and the edit of the film changed a lot. The sequence where he says "I see dead people" was really supposed to end with a camera pan that would reveal a bunch of people in the hospital who died from various injuries, covered in blood and stuff. And I think because they didn't want the or rating, they had to tone that stuff down. Have I um, seen a very version of that no there's clips in the trailer that are not in the movie yeah okay um but it's worth noting that to get the effect where Haley joel osmond's breath is visible Hmm. cgi had not yet reached that point they actually had to turn the temperature on the set down to zero degrees and they could apparently only do it for like eight minutes at a time because of child labor laws so it's like we got to do this get the close-up heat the room back up cool it down again get the close-up and yeah, apparently it was a very, very intensive process for all involved. Um, and uh, Misha Barton talks about how, because Haley Joel Osment was the only kid, uh, well, I mean, like, he, there are other kids in the film, obviously, but he was the kid who was the, like, the lead character in the film. 
he talked about how he'd just wander around the set bouncing a ball off a wall. Um, and how he taught her to play racquetball, apparently, which is a oh. very sweet little story. I quite yeah. like that one. Um, and Haley Joel Osmond apparently was starstruck. He um, he talked about working with Wilson, finding it great. But he talked about meeting Steven Spielberg because he did AI after this. And he uh, was he confused? Did it was it Shyamalan he met? <laughs> yeah. he was like, it's like oh, wait, you're you're the last Shyamalan, right? Um, not the last Airbender. Uh, but he talks about how like um, the best bit of advice he got from Spielberg about uh, the whole being famous thing was that the best part of the Oscars is the commercial breaks when you get to leave your seat and run up to all the people who you think are really cool and famous. Oh, um, that's so sweet. It is really sweet. And he talks that that's how he met Jude Law. Jude Law ran up to him during a commercial break at the Oscars and said, I hear we're making a movie, a Steven Spielberg movie together, which is very, very sweet. Yeah, that's nice. Um, so I think that about wraps it up in terms of talking about the success, unless there's anything else you want to talk about. Uh, no, I think that's it for me anyway. Yeah, there, well, there was the one piece of food waste where the, oh. the dinner gets thrown out. But that's very pro forma. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll we'll but, go on. Um, I mean, if, if that kid ate the drain cleaner soup, the least that they could do. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, yeah. Um, and again, there's, I, there's the whole kind of mental illness as a superpower kind of yes. thing, thing that, that uh, Shyamalan uh, likes to, to do. As somebody who's, 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 who's not terribly familiar with with um, uh, his uh, filmography, uh, like yeah, 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 but it's very much kind of um, well. I mean, like Split, for example, is yeah, his most yeah, obvious yeah, example. Exactly. Where Split is like, what if uh, multiple personality disorder was a superpower? Yeah, um, sort of thing. And there's there's an aspect of that here, I suppose, as well. There is, there yeah, because I mean, it, it's telling that it's w- like, what what if what if um, well, what if magic was real? Is 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 um, no some some magic is real, yeah. but not is, the magic that Malcolm does. Crucially. I love that. I love that gag where he does it in front of Cole and then Cole does it in front of the kid. And Cole's like, I didn't know you were funny, uh, which is just a great response. <laughs> and the kid that Cole does it is like, that's stupid, um, which is great. I love yeah. how far ahead of his peers Cole is. And I, I really like the Willis's acting in that scene yeah. when he does it. Like he's, yeah. he kind of hams it up. It's fun. Yeah. Um, what's that saying? Yeah, no, 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 no. Oh, oh, it's it's a sequence where Malcolm describes it as yes, some sort of like preteen schizophrenia. Yeah, yeah, but 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 that's kind of um, or even the way Vincent Gray's portrayed maybe at the start as well. It it, it is almost like the movie is trying kind of in that moment to to um, to to ask kind of like what if what if some people that we uh, that we think have have these kind of mental illnesses yeah, are yeah. actually which is, superpowered which is which yeah, is a weird kind of a, a an uh, angle to take yeah yeah which is we and i wonder Sh- um, Shyamalan is kind of i guess fond of yeah i mean i don't mind i mean i completely understand people's take on split my issue with my thing with split is that split is so ridiculous that there's no way i think you could take it seriously as opposed to some of the other stuff where, like, you see, like, autism portrayed as a superpower, where it's, like, your ability to, like, you can... Rain Man, for example. The amount of like... child psychologists <laughs> who, who, would, who would be told, like, oh, he's, uh, he's clearly the victim of abuse. No, I think this one is seeing dead people. <laughs> like, it was just a movie. <laughs> <laughs> one of these times I'll be right, and then Philadelphia will give me a giant plaque. Um... Yeah, so I think that about wraps it up then in terms of talking about The Sixth Sense. What we normally do at the end of the podcast is we ask you, uh, you to recommend something to listeners that you've enjoyed recently and basically tell them where they can find you online. Okay. Um, actually, this is going to be an unusual recommendation, I think, because it's a book that's about 10 years old. Um, 
One Day by David Nichols. I literally just finished it last week and it's such a beautiful book and it's the biggest gap in quality between movie and book I've ever encountered. So, the, Which film was this? It was a film where it was a romantic yeah. comedy with Anne Hathaway and Jim Sturgis and they had no chemistry Okay. And it didn't work you at mean, all. Shoot. You mean nobody? Somebody had no chemistry with Jim Sturgis? Yeah, I know. I go I it did quite well, though. Um, people saw it, um, but I would I consider it a bad movie. Yeah. Um, but um, I've been trying to read more love stories, and this one had been recommended to me by everyone, and I gave it a go, and it's just got lovely insights, uh, lovely characters, sparkling dialogue, and. Um, yeah it's just a real little gem of a, a book so if i were to recommend something that i consumed recently that's it um what was the other thing and where can i find you online uh, listeners looking for a bit more joe in their lives <laughs> you can never get enough uh <laughs> gotta have that joe it's the joe griffin or the joe griffin is my twitter handle and that's where i usually hang out online perfect and andrew um something to recommend i'm a little bit stumped um i um childhood <laughs> i actually yeah, yeah. I, 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 yeah can we can we um uh, can we do the opposite of recommending things <laughs> what if what if what if i don't want something what if i want to get rid of something <laughs> what if i want to get rid of yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah don't don't have a childhood <laughs> <laughs> that would be my for our one baby listener <laughs> oh yeah yeah the baby's still no, here no have a childhood baby <laughs> Um, I would recommend actually and because this is being released in September-ish actually uh, I would recommend um, Extraordinary which is an Irish film Um, and again very much in the spirit of the sixth sense spirit ah, see what I did there but yeah, it's it's a story. It's an it's a it's an Irish comedy. Um, it's Enda Lochnan and uh, Micah Hearn are directing it, um, starring Maeve Higgins as well, Barry Ward and Will Fort. Actually, um, it's a story of a psychic uh, in the west of Ireland who has given up her gift or talent and become a driving instructor, but it becomes embroiled in a complicated scheme involving an aging American rock star who may or may not be Krista Berg. Um, exorcism and uh, demonic possession Will Forte is in this I, yes. I, I really enjoy him and so I'd, actually yeah, I if really I were like going to recommend something I'd, I'd recommend The Last Man on Earth if, where, wherever you show. can find it yeah, yeah it's, it's incredible it's him and uh, Kirsten Shaw sure, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah so I, I recommend Extraordinary it's, it's a goofy kind of again in the style of 70s horror films a lot of affection for films like The Exorcist and The Shining and stuff like that and a very very Irish sensibility I know we have lots of international listeners so if you are or have been tempted to try something Irish and want something that is distinctly Irish this is undeniably Irish in its sort of worldview and sense of humour I loved it I had a really good time with it and I hardly recommend it um, if you want to try that alright so uh, we'll be back next week actually when we'll be covering American Beauty uh, with the wonderful uh, Ron Ockney Gregor um, and Charlene Lydon will be joining us to discuss that I'm quite looking forward to that I'm sure it'll be an interesting discussion thank you very much for joining us Joe we really really appreciate it thanks for having me I had a really good time alright take it easy guys we'll see you next week bye bye